Hi, everybody. Will here from Dog Show Tips. Um, you're going to love this. this. This is an interview with Paul Wilson. Paul Wilson has been a friend of mine for years. He breeds border, ter border terriers. He had some whippets. And he was a huntsman, a professional huntsman for the London Hunt Club here in Ontario. And then now he is he's the hunt professional huntman huntsman in Keswick at the Keswick Hunt Club in Central Virginia. And he's going to give us a insight to his life as a huntsman. And it's it's amazing. You're going to love this. So sit back and relax and listen to Paul, and he'll tell you all about his life with the hounds. Hi everybody, Will Alexander here with from Dog Show Tips with this week's interview chair, my very good friend Paul Wilson. Now I've known Paul, he used to live in Canada and he was the professional huntsman at the London and Hamilton Country Clubs, is that right? Hunt Clubs, yeah, Hunt, Hunt Country Clubs, clubs. Yeah. yeah. And now he is the professional huntsman at the Keswick Hunt Club in Central Virginia. I want to find out exactly what Paul does, but I met Paul through dog shows like Whippets and Border Terriers. Right. Yeah. 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 How's Little it going, Paul? Everything. It's going good. Well, good to see you, man. Good to see you. Has been a been a long time. So been too long. Yeah. Been too long. I keep meaning to try and get up there. You know, I'm. Uh, uh, you know, Joanne and Al, big mentors of mine, and they 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 said to me, "You're going to come up to the to the uh, the border terrier, the Canada border terrier uh, national next year in uh, Nova Scotia." And, uh, I'm I'm kind of tempted, actually. Kind of tempted. Sure, like, that'd but, be great, Nova Scotia. Yeah, yeah. I've never been out east, so I'd love to go. And we've got a good friend that uh, used to live in um, in uh, in London, and she moved out there last year. So yeah, that's where so Patrick we, lives too. Patrick Mudge lives in New Brunswick. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Patrick's yeah. gone out there. There, everyone, everyone in Ontario went out to. Flipping for a Nova while Scotia. anyway and some of them came back yeah colin went out there for a while and then he came back i'm like <laughs> yeah, holy crap there's not going to be anyone left in ontario at that rate everyone <laughs> jumped ship yeah <laughs> anyway let's tell the viewers tell the viewers exact i want to know your daily routine but first of all tell me let, let's tell them exactly what you do but you are so my job is professional huntsman is i look after I have right now. I have around seventy foxhounds. Uh, these are American foxhounds, um, and I basically maintain and look after all of those those hounds plus um, all of the hounds. Uh, uh, sorry, all of the horses as well. So we have four horses here present, um, and I have a girl that looks after the the four horses. She's our barn manager, and I kind of oversee everything with the horse side of things to make sure everything's, you know, the horses are fit and, and ready for the job that, that they need to be done. Um, and then the, the hounds, uh, daily we go in and we go in there around about seven o'clock, seven thirty, uh, depending on the time of the year, this time of year, it's around about that time in the summer. We go in there earlier just to try and get ahead of the heat, um, and go wash down, strip all the beds, wash them all down. Uh, they go out in a big area, a big grass area, grass yard area way off the. So the the kennels, and I'm, I'll send you a video later on so people can see. So they have a, a, a big atrium inside, which have big raised concrete beds that we put uh, cedar shavings on. And the hounds live communally. 
So they all live in together. So there'll be as many as 55, 60 in, in the one big kennel at one time. And then, um, and then we have a separate, another big yard that the, the juvenile pups go in so that they're not an annoying the old hounds, especially during hunting season. They, they don't want, you know, juvenile hounds jumping all over in them and just generally annoying them. So they're going to ever get any issues with the mix ups. No, not really. I mean, the big biggest uh, when you get bitches coming into heat, you know, they, they, all the boys start getting a little stupid, you know, how that goes. Um, but they'll let you know in plenty of time. I mean, soon as soon as the bitches are even remotely ready to be kind of bleeding or anything like that, the the the, the dog hounds are, are on it. So they they get taken away. We have like a little a separate wing on the backside that has two, three, four separate pens, and then I have a pen specifically we call them lodges it's the old english term uh we have a separate lodge for the for the hot bitches and the bitches go in there for 21 days so that and that's basically the only time we really get any squabblings every now and again they'll have the odd tiff but i mean you know you're a hound guy as well beagles i mean for the most part they pretty much enjoy each other's company they they sleep together they hunt together you know we feed them on big troughs so they all eat together. People are always quite astounded by how, you know, how how good they all get along when we're feeding. Like it's like, oh, I could never do this with, you know, golden retrievers or something or huskies or something. You know, there's there's sixty hounds all feeding off the troughs. You know, and they'll 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 get a little bit, you know, rambunctious and stuff. But for the most part, they really do get along pretty good. It's amazing. So we uh, we go in the morning, do all the wash down. Wash down. We have big septic tanks. Everything gets washed into the septic tanks, uh, so there's no real smell. Uh, once once or twice a month, I have a, a big industrial steam cleaner, and everything gets steam cleaned out just to keep all the bugs and nasties out of the way. Um, and then once we've once we wash down, bring them back in. I'll set out the troughs for feeding, and then. Uh, Slowly, one by one, we'll, I let the hounds in to feed. So I, I base it upon body condition and knowing those specific hounds as to how uh, how quickly they eat and body condition as well. So aggressive, fat ones get to lick the troughs and the ones that you know sit there and take three hours to eat and just sniff every kibble and those those get they they go in there first so it, it's it's an art in, in itself when you've got 70 hounds and you I'm look sure. at them and, and you you see them and they're all fairly well balanced you know that you're doing an okay job you, you sometimes see people that are in over the heads and they've got some that are fat some that are skinny you know it, it's almost an art in itself being able to breed to feed 70 hounds at one go and and make sure but that that's that connection knowing the hounds and and how they feed and and which ones thrive there's ones that you just instinctively pull them off straight away you know they'll all wait at the door and you call their names and they'll come to you and then they just they go through the gateway and then they start eating so there's there's some that like i say as soon as you get in there, you automatically just pull them off because they're just they go in there and they go, and, and you know, you know, it'll take them twenty minutes to get what the fat ones takes like three cups of food, you know. Yeah, I know a beagle to like, so I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, that, those latter ones are a bit like me. They 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 what we call good doers, like you know, they just need to sniff the fresh air and they're getting fat, right? You know, so <laughs> yeah, not so bad. So once they're fed. Um, we take all the wash all the troughs down everything and then 
the hounds will are held in the main atrium in the middle in the feeding area. Then we'll take them for a walk. Uh, we'll go for a walk up the road. Um, the whole pack. And, yeah, yeah, the whole pack. So, uh, which is it's getting harder and harder. Where where the kennels are, it's, I call it the triangle of death. So, you know, I don't know if you can hear it on the mics or not, but to the back of us is quite a, a main uh, railway track. So we've got railway lines to the back of the property. Then as a road comes up the front of the property and then another road to the other side. And we have Keswick Hall, which is quite a major um, hotel and golf course to the back of us. So there's traffic backwards and forwards all the time, which is not ideal. But um, it, it makes for the hounds. The hounds are very responsive. When we're going along the road, you know, we, we they all know the commands. If I put my whip out to the right, it means that all the hounds move to the left and you say, get over, and they'll get over and they'll get up onto the verge and get out of the way of the vehicles and the vehicles can get past and then we just carry on with our walk. So, I mean, when you're doing it multiple times in the morning, you know, they just instinctively know, you know, so, but it's still... Are you walking still, or are you horseback at that point? No, I just don't. We just walk every, oh. you know, on an everyday exercise and we just, we just walk and, and as... So we have to we'll, go visit Paul. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Come, come on over. Come on over. Yeah. We welcome anybody. I mean, it's we. It's a very open, open book. You know. I mean, you know what you see is what you get. You know. Um, but we walk them, walk them out. Like especially now during the hunting season, we walk them out at you know so many days a week. And then uh, when we finish, so our season starts in early August, and we'll hunt. Um, what we call staff hunt and we'll we'll so it's just myself and two or three other guys just training the young pups we'll start in in early august and we'll go out probably five mornings five mornings a week four or five mornings depending um and we'll we'll go out into the cornfields and basically let the young hounds and we'll take only a few hounds at a time um a few puppies sorry the older hounds will take plenty of the older hounds and then a couple of the puppies until they kind of get 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 the gist of what's going on so it's a lot of the times we'll we'll put them in big old cornfields and the foxes tend to live in the cornfields because there's bugs and stuff like that and they'll chase them round and round and round and round in the cornfields for a couple of hours until he goes in a hole basically that's that early on in the season is basically what happens and it's it's brilliant for the puppies because the puppies hear the other hounds speaking and in full cry and they run to it and it sucks them in and they get the, the gist of it so we go from August till through till Labor Day, uh, and then the the what we call the, the the mounted field are allowed to come out then. Um, so we'll start in that's informal uh, season. So they so then we'll get the whole field out, and then it switches to just three days a week: Mondays, Wednesdays, and Saturdays. Um, and then we'll we'll run that until. Uh, the third week in October, which is our official opener meet. So up until that point, everyone wears uh, what they call rat catcher clothing, which is tweeds and whatnot, browns and tweeds and stuff like that. And then when the official formal season comes in, people wear, the gentlemen wear the red coats and the ladies wear blue or black. Do you take um, members out on these hunts? Is that what, the, what you do? Yeah, so basically the cl the clubs... The, the club structure is so we, we here at Keswick we have a board of governors the board of governors appoint the masters so the masters basically run like oversee the, 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 the financial cost of things hiring staff 
and the welfare of the hounds and the horses making sure that they employ the right people. So right now, currently, we have three joint masters, all guys, um, and they they basically employ myself. Uh, I have a guy in the kennels called Mike who's been here forever. He's been here like 25 years. And then uh, Tony Ann, who just who started with us back in May. So there's the three of us. So um, so they, they employ the staff. So then we have the staff and then the members pay a fee to be part of this hunt club. So uh, for, a, for a family membership, it's like 2,500 bucks. So that's like, you know, a full family um, and plus kids. And then they have like a, an interim age for like up to, I think it's like 30 or something like that, 18 to 30. And then a kid's uh, a kid's uh, membership, and then just a single membership. And I think just a single membership is like seventeen hundred bucks. But it's included in that we go out three times a week, so it's probably close to 80, 90 days hunting a year. They have lots of um, social events, lots of parties, and stuff like that. So we have, I think, I think probably around about 250, 260 members. So it brings in a lot of money, but there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of cost there. You know, we've got like everything, insurances and all of that kind of stuff and vehicles and bills and whatnot. So they, they get, to be honest, for what they get, when you consider like horse showing or dog showing, they get quite a lot of bang for their buck, really. Um, but that's the basic. So, I mean, so if you're a member, you can, you're, you're allowed to come out once the season starts, you can come out as many times as you want. So we all have what we call a meat card. So we have each each hunt club throughout America and Canada has a designated area they're allowed to hunt. So they've registered what they call a country. So Keswick hunt countries, you know, X, Y, and Z, and all of those areas within there. So we have several areas throughout our hunt country that we have meeting points. And we every every like twice a year we'll send we send out to all the members a, a card with all of the lists of dates and where we'll meet at certain points within the hunt country. So, you know, one day we'll, we'll be at a meet called uh, Mount Sharon and that incorporates all the area in and around Orange, um, the town of Orange. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll hunt all of that area in that. And then, and then next week we'll be in another area down in Louisa County, there's another big area there that we hunt. So it's different. Diff, we, we've got, I think, four or five different areas that we hunt, and they're all different. Um, topographically, they're all different. You know, there's some flatlands, some more mountainous areas. So it's a big diversity, and people can just pick and choose which which ones they want to come to or not come to. And then uh, when we go out on a hunt, so I'm in charge. I'm the guy with the red jacket. I, all the hounds follow me. Then I have what we call whipperins, which are my... Um, assistance basically the huntsman's assistance and they'll uh make sure that their primary primary objective is to make sure that the hounds are safe so they'll get out what we call on point and make sure like if we're hacking along the road or trotting along the road that the vehicle stop stop and slow down and make sure the hounds are safe in that respect and then when we get hunting they, they look out for for the foxes basically so they can tell me if they've seen a fox or if there's deer or bear or whatever that's crept out that you know we don't want to hunt the hounds here are very very good they're very um they're very true to fox they won't hunt anything other than a fox but um certainly early on in the season when we're training puppies 
you need those those guys out front making sure that they don't they don't hunt anything that that they ought not to be um so that's the first group and then what we have is the the masters the three masters will take different uh we have three different levels of riders so we have what we call the first field and they basically go everywhere i go they run and jump and you know gallop and go everywhere where i go then we have a second flight um and they run everywhere try to stay as close to us as we can but they don't jump so they'll just for 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 a little slightly more timid riders and then we have a third flight which is basically kids and old people that don't want they they either can't or don't want to run anymore but they'll kind of the the nickname for the third third flight is hilltoppers so they'll basically get up into a high point and try and you know they'll walk and trot and maybe canter a little bit but they'll basically try and get into vantage points so they can experience the hunt and see the hunt and hear the hunt but not go full ball basically you know galloping around like like crazy people like we do <laughs> so how many horses total would be would go on a hunt then well, i guess it depends on how many people go but what's an average yeah, an average i mean average i would say probably 30 would wow. be an average so the high days and by days uh down here in, in america the thanksgiving and it was the same in london i mean it, it always attracted a lot more people that people like to be there but we have our thanksgiving meet here and we have it at uh, Grace Church up the road, and the hounds get blessed. And it's a, it's a very big thing. I mean, it's on the TV and everything. I mean, it, we probably get, on a good day, probably 70, 80 horses at that. Um, and then there's probably several hundred people at the church all there for the blessing of the hounds as well. So it's still it's still quite a quite a big thing. And it's, it was the same in London. It was a huge thing in London. There was there's literally hundreds and hundreds of people that would be at the Hunt Club in London uh, just to see us parade the hounds there. So it's it's kind of cool. It's a nice tradition. It's a nice tradition. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we we've had as many. I mean, especially if you do. So sometimes we'll have Hunt Clubs that join join together and and have what they call like a joint meet, where you know we, there's three or four different Hunt Clubs within fairly close proximity to us here um and we've we've had as many as 120 horses out which is chaos it's too many oh, it really sure. is it's too many i mean back in england you, you'd you'd see some of the really big hunt clubs in england they'd have it's nothing for them to have 150 horses on a weekly basis so you think in england so they they hunt a lot longer in england in terms of how long they're out so Generally, uh, some of the bigger hunts in England will have what they call a second horse. So they'll hunt until, generally we meet at 10 o'clock. So they'll hunt until maybe 1.32. And then at 1.30 or 2 o'clock, they'll have a designated area where they're going to change horses. And they'll have a second horse at 1.30 or 2 o'clock. So some of those big hunts in England that have got 150 horses, at one point there will be 300 horses in a field all changing while everyone gets onto their fresh mounts and away they'll go again and, and, and carry on hunting again. That's amazing, Paul. Jesus. Oh, I mean, just to see this, it, it's like, you know, the, you, you, it, it, you know, the likes you wouldn't have seen since, you know, back in the days when they were, they were still having wars with horses, basically, you know, battles with horses on horseback. I mean, it, it's a finesse, you know, you see, 
all of the horses that are that are tired and then all of their grooms would be carried would be they'll be riding and sometimes riding and leading second and you know that some families have two or three horses and the, the grooms will be bringing two or three horses at once and it's just it's phenomenal to see i mean really just very dramatic you know but uh, over here in the colonies, not quite so much. It's not quite uh, <laughs> colony. <laughs> not, not not quite as fancy as that. But yeah, you know, it's the people that enjoy it and they have a lot of fun. I mean, a lot of people, you know, you get the animal rights crowd, and you know, the amount of foxes we actually catch is pretty minimal. The the sport in it is watching the hounds and listening to the hounds. Ninety five percent of the time, the fox gets in a hole. Occasionally they'll catch one, and it's normally an old, stupid, or sick one, basically, which would have gotten taken out anyway. You know, I mean, there's there's probably a hundred times the amount that get killed on a road from from traffic accidents than what we actually catch. You know, so I think it's a it's a, it's a non-starter on when when aunties start going on about how it's cruel. It's you know, the fox has all the advantages. He knows exactly. You know, we're not releasing a fox in 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 foreign areas. It's it's purely foxes we find out in the open, and they they have they have the advantage. You know, they know exactly where they're going. Um, just right now, I mean, we have we haven't had rain in probably I want to say probably five six weeks, and you know i mean as a hound guy you'll know scenting conditions when it's this dry are just abysmal terrible um and we the hounds are really really struggling i mean the other day we were out at a place and the whole the whole field all the mounted field saw this fox trot right down through this one pasture and we took the hounds through it and the hounds were just like you know just just crickets you know, nothing. No, nothing, absolutely nothing. Couldn't smell a damn thing. Those foxes know that. I mean, they're hunters themselves, right? right? The fox is a predator, so he knows when he's looking for his own dinner, crap, I can't smell anything. So he knows that when he's being pursued by something else, it's like, yeah, I, I think I'm pretty safe today, boys, you know? <laughs> so it's... Uh, they, they'll, they'll only run as, as long as they want to run, and sometimes we can run one for an hour. And you'll find a hole, and sometimes you'll run for ten minutes and say, "Yeah, no, sorry, guys, don't fancy my exercise routine today." You know, it's kind of like exercising them. So it's a, it's I've I've had a pretty fortunate, blessed life, whatever, however, which way you want to say it. I mean, I've, this is like thirty-first season doing this job. How did you get started in this? So my um my grandma's brother was um was a very prominent, what they call, kennel huntsman. Now, back in England, back in the day, you'd have sometimes instead of having a professional huntsman, you'd have one of the masters who was very wealthy, liked to hunt the hounds. So they they would employ what they call a kennel huntsman, which he would assist the master in hunting the hounds. So he was basically, in essence, a huntsman, but he, he kind of, he was like, I don't know, looking after the the old boy that was <laughs> hunting the hounds kind of thing. So he was he was what they call a kennel huntsman for a very famous pack, the Pokeridge in 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 Herefordshire in, in England. And he was there I think he was there something like fifty years. I mean the guy was was a bit of a legend. His name was Ned Paxton. And um we went down there a couple of times with um with my mom and my grandma and met him and I was only a just a wee nipper back then. And 
you know, I would tell tell all these stories about, you know, back in the kennels, about all the hounds and stuff. And back in England, we, we the hounds were fed on fallen stock, i.e. dead animals, right? So if you're a cattle farmer or you're a sheep farmer and you have a cow die or a sheep die, you'd bring up the local hunt and pick. we'd come and pick it up take it back to the kennels and we'd have a big skinning area and butchering area and we'd skin it down, you know, and, and join it all up. And, and, you know, he'd be telling me stories about how, how he, you know, the, him and his daughter could skin a horse in about 15 minutes and stuff like that. And most, most kids would probably be absolutely horrified and grow yeah. out by it. And I'm like, all right, yeah, this is, this is <laughs> wicked. Tell me more about how you chop up a dead horse, you know? And, <laughs> Um, it just kind of stemmed from there. So when I left school, I went to college for a little while and went, nah, that's, that's not, not me. And I dodged around in the horse world for a little bit, doing some show jumpers and stuff like that. And was like, yeah, that wasn't scratching the itch either. And then a job came up uh, looking after hunt horses, but not, not actually at the kennels. It was a, a, a what they call a, a, a hireling yard. So in England, there's places where their business is basically hiring horses for a day. So you can you can go hunting. If you're capable enough rider, you can just go and hire a horse for the day to go hunt rather than having the expense of, you know, the expense of a horse, which is a horse, yeah. bloody expensive. Horse, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you pay 300 300 pounds for to hire the horse for the day you can go fox hunting and that you know that's what you do so i went and worked for um a lady that did that and i stayed there for a year and thought yeah i'd rather i wanted to get more involved with the dogs and the hounds hounds as they're always called they're always referred to as hounds so then i went from there to um to the west country in england to the east devon and started off at the bottom there as you know, chief poop shoveler, and uh, but it was it was both. So we all do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no kidding. But that's a whole pile of poop. Um, so yeah, so we I was kennelman. What I call Kent, they called me kennelman slash groom. So I looked after all the horses and the hounds. So it was it was a lot. I think we had back then. I think we probably had at least five or six horses that I had to look after completely. And then all the kennels and all the skinning, and there was only two of us. So it was a lot. I mean, it was, uh, it was big dairy country. So they'd they'd have tremendous amounts of cattle coming in a lot of, um, a lot of cows. There was a a lot of, and I I didn't, I didn't even pass my test at that point. So I couldn't drive. So Nick, who was the, the huntsman at the time, he would go out and pick everything up, which was the easy part. And then, you know, I'd be back home juggling between, you know, exercising horses, doing all of that, and then in the flesh house skinning cows until 10 o'clock at night, you know, butchering stuff. So it was it was long, long hours, long, long. I remember one Christmas Eve, we were in there till 11 o'clock at night throwing snowballs at each other. I mean, it was just crazy, you know, busy. But I wouldn't have changed it, you know. I mean, it, it taught me some a lot of valuable stuff, you know. Of course. Um, and then just gl- slowly made my way up through the ranks. I went from there to further further southwest towards Plymouth, down the southwest of England. Um, and that was my first whipper in position. And I lived in a mobile home at the kennels. <laughs> I think I got paid like 25 quid a week. 
And then I got as as a, as a bonus, I got to get I, I got to keep all of the sheepskins, which probably summed for about I don't know, like an extra five quid a week, something like that. It was really they they weren't worth a whole a whole pile. Like, but it was it was a bit of something, you know. Yeah. And then from there, I went to uh, up to the Lake District, up in up in the Lake District, the northwest of England, to the Vale of Loon, and they were a pack of harriers. Um, Stud book harriers, and that was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. The harriers are they're they're a nice breed, lovely, lovely mm. breed. Uh, cheery little hounds. I like them a lot. Um, stayed there a little while, and then from there, how I many up, harriers would be there? Um, I think we had roughly about, I think there was about, about 30 mm. couple, 25, 30 couples, so between 50 and 60. Wow, it's bigger than the national specialty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I don't yeah. think that was terribly hard, would it? I don't think there's that many many harriers. Period, is there? There's a few up here in Canada. We had our last year. We had our harrier and foxhound specialty in Aldia, Virginia, and I'm not sure how many they drew. Maybe maybe twenty. So. Yeah, yeah. There's a lady. I remember when we were at Vale Loon. She's she has a place out west. I'm not entirely sure which state. I think it's like Arizona or New Mexico. Um, and she does a, She has a pack of, of of hounds that she hunts, but she also does quite a lot of showing. Is it the Kingsbury Kingsbury Harriers? Well, that's, a, that's a famous kennel. Yeah. Yeah, I want. I want to say Kingsbury. Um, but yeah, she 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 actually came over when we were there and 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 took some hounds, some stud hounds back with her. Wow. But I think she took some Vale of Loon hounds, and I think the big the big hounds that were winning a lot in the in the particular hound shows back then were uh, the two main packs that were the ones to beat were uh, Pendle Forest and Craven, and the High Peak High Peak Carriers. Those two were like the two kind of premium packs for for winning. They they did win a tremendous amount of uh, hound shows. So we, Vale of Loon were kind of a little bit, you know second tier we had some nice ones but they weren't you know they weren't as fancy and as pretty as as the other two big major packs um so then from there i went to fife in scotland uh the five foxhounds and uh was a whipper in there for a couple of seasons which is where i met explain what a whipper in is again so the huntsman's assistant basically the the grunt do all the grunt work So I was away praying at the Fife, which is where I met Yvonne. So Yvonne was, well, I didn't meet her in Scotland. So she was, my brother was doing the same jobs down in Yorkshire. And she was working for a, for a, a, a lady down in Yorkshire that was a big fox hunting yard. And my brother was was a, was a kennelman down there in, in the Baydale hunt. And every year they have something called a puppy show. And the puppy show is basically, it's a very, very British thing. Everyone, all the gentlemen wear bowler hats and whatnot and pinstripe suits and drink pins. Um, and they have a they have a show area and basically it, they, they call it a puppy show, but the pups are 18 months old. They're mature hounds. So in England, the hounds are, um, as puppies, they're, they're sent out to farms and stables uh, to get to know their names and to see things. And then they come back to the kennels when they're six, seven months old, once they've learned their names and seen horses and pigs and sheep and chickens and stuff. Um, and those people that, that look after them, they're called puppy walkers. So they have, it's, it's kind of a, a double-edged thing. So 
when those puppies are 18 months old, they have this show and it's a confirmation show and they normally invite um, a master and master from a neighboring hunt and a huntsman from a neighboring hunt and they judge them confirmationally and they're awarded prizes and the prizes go to the people who walk them. And then they have afternoon tea afterwards, cucumber sandwiches, pims, the whole nine yards. So this was my brother's uh, puppy show at the Bay Deal and I met Yvonne there so that we kind of ended up cohabitating with one another. And then when I left Fife, we moved to, to Ireland together and that's when we, we kind of got together. So then obviously I'm in Ireland then in County Kildare, still whippering, still doing all the grunt work. Um, we stayed How old were you at this point, Paul? Uh, 23. Well, just a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Still a nipper. Um, and then from Ireland, we went to, to Rome, Italy. Um, we got, so the, the guy that I was whipping into in Kildare was a, a, a fellow called Peter Feeney. And the master in Rome had said, you know, would you be interested in coming to, to Rome and hunting the Rome foxhounds? And he said, oh, hell no, no, I'm an Irish boy. I'm going to, you know, live and die in Ireland. I'm not going anywhere kind of thing, you know. So he said, but I do have a young whipper in. He says, that I think is probably ready to take on the job of a huntsman. He says, if, you know, if you want to give him a call, you know, he's a young guy, he's got nothing to lose kind of thing. So they called me up and said, would you like, would you like to come out and have a look? So Yvonne and I chatted and we're like, what the hell, you know, we're only, you're only young once. Right. So um, I jumped on a plane and, and had a look and thought, yeah, why not? So it was it was back in what was that two thousand two thousand and yeah it must have been two thousand it was the year that um, they had foot and mouth in England and that was that was pretty pretty epic because I basically flew out from Ireland to to Italy and uh, kind of just to get to know the pack because the guy that I was taking over from was still there so I, he needed to be there to show me all the, you know everything he needed I needed to see you know all the all the water for you know how to get water and all the all the rest of it um how they fed and that kind of stuff and more importantly just all the hounds names right because you you don't just roll there and say oh yeah there's 60 hounds you know boom Couldn't imagine well so so I, I landed there and and you I know like, all your do- 60 hounds you would know all their names then I know all the names, know all of the parents' names, and probably all the pedigrees. It, it's a it's a geeky kind of hound thing. I mean, it's, pretty <laughs> no, it's no different than you with your with your setters and whatnot, but it's just on a much bigger scale, right? Yeah. And and the, we, I have a real, you know, the advantage that the master of foxhounds, which is the governing body for all the foxhounds, has a website and they have a, a database with all the pedigrees on, so I can just pull one up at a blink of an eye. If I'm looking at certain qualities on different hounds and whatnot, I can just pull it up and, and just see if there's a good match or not, if I want to do a breed and stuff. So that's kind of that's kind of handy. So, But, yeah, so we get there, and I had like three or four days to learn all of the hounds. So it was kind of that, that in itself, you know. It's... It, I think when you've been in the game a little while, you, you kind of learn a few tricks as to how to learn the names quickly. And I would always just have like a little notepad and just, you know, this is this hound and write a little note. looked like so-and-so from the last pack, you know. Um, and, and it just helped me get to learn them a lot quicker, you know. 
So I'm in I'm in Italy there and you know all sorted. Meanwhile, Yvonne is back in Ireland getting everything packed up to come to Ireland uh, to Italy. Um, and fortunate, well, fortunate or unfortunate, however you which way you want to look at it, because of the foot and mouth, um, some good friends of Yvonne's, they typically would have been fox hunting at that time of year, but because everything was shut down, they couldn't go anywhere. It's kind of a bit like pandemic, really, in some ways. Um, so they offered, they said, look, we've got a, we've got a horse, horse lorry, like a, a four horse lorry. We'll come over to, to, to Ireland. We'll come and load because Yvonne had her horse and then we had our own dogs and terriers and whatnot. Um, and the, and the, and the, the amount of furniture that we had. So basically Yvonne and, uh, uh, her two friends basically all jumped in the truck and came back through England and then all the way through France, which was pretty terrifying. They had a couple of blowouts on the way there because it was the, the lorry was so loaded up with so much stuff. So they had two big blowouts. So she's she's in the in the middle of France with a blowout in an English truck that the French were all fully aware of that England had foot and mouth. So she was absolutely petrified that, you know, sure. that the French were going to stone her to death because, you know, uh, let alone the poor horse. The horse was not supposed to have come off the, the, the lorry through the whole period of time. And I think they did at one point. I think they snuck him off. Um, How long a trip would that be? How long would that take? It's like a couple of days, I think. Yeah. It was a couple of days. Um, but I think they took him, took, took him off at one point and uh, let him have some grass and a quick pee. Because I don't know if you know much about horses, but generally they don't like to, on the move, they don't like to pee or anything like that. You know, they like to be on solid terra firma. Um, so basically, um, yeah, they rolled up. And, and there's a few stories I could tell you right now, but probably not. Um, where, where we were was an interesting part of Rome. It was basically on the Appia Nuova, uh, sorry, the Appia Antica, which is, if you've ever seen the movie Spartacus, it's where they hang all of the, you know, all the people when the Romans were there. So the, the kennels were right on that road, and that road was known for some nefarious things that went along there, and it was, you know, yeah, some some interesting stuff. Yeah. You know, we, <laughs> um, so, yeah, so Yvonne, Yvonne landed, and, uh, yeah, we were there almost five years, and Giacomo was conceived there and born there, and that was interesting. You know, the Italians, even not that long ago, kind of, it was... It was like a the step back in time, you know. I mean, back in back in England and, and Canada would be the same, you know. You give birth to your baby and it's with you and whatnot. In Rome, Italy, they had them in these big, huge um, crashes that were air conditioned, and the actual wards were um, were not air conditioned. So it's like a hundred degrees in the middle of August, and there's no air conditioning. So the babies were were in these air conditioned areas in these crashes, and it was. It was just bizarre, really, really bizarre. I mean, I love Italy was just such a wonderful place, a fantastic country, but so backward in so many ways, so backwards. I mean, when we went to register Giacomo's birth, I was expecting, like, we'd go down and there'd be, you know, some lady sitting behind a computer. And we went in there, and they have these huge, great big three-foot-tall ledgers, and everything's written down in ledgers. Oh, 
Yeah, I mean, literally. I mean, it was like, what are we, like the 17th century? <laughs> <laughs> Insane. Crazy. Crazy. So, yeah, so next skip was from there. We came to uh, Pennsylvania, We uh, to a small pack in Pennsylvania. And the guy there was an absolute fruit loop, absolute lunatic. Um, so we only stayed there a year. Um, and that's when we came to Hamilton. We came to Hamilton, Ontario. We were there a couple of years and had I had an absolute blast. Loved it at Hamilton. It was such a nice club. Um, but then kind of got headhunted by the London, which was the next door pack uh, for more money, better house, bigger country, bigger hunt country to hunt. So it was it was kind of a no brainer. So we stayed there for ten years. Um, I just yeah, we had so much fun there. And then this job came up, and you know. Canada has its limitations doing what I do. Um, it's a short season. You know, the, the winter comes in way too it's quick. Yeah. yeah, yeah, basically. I mean, if to be honest, if if Canada didn't, didn't, you know, there was one year, I mean, I think it was like the 28th of October, we got like two foot of snow in London. It was like, are you kidding me? You know, and, and like here, we will go through till March, right? So... You know, it's it's a bit of a no-brainer. You know, yeah. I mean, if 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 they could have, if we could have hunted until even maybe February, it would have been something. But I was, you know, still a relatively young man. I'm not old and decrepit yet, so <laughs> I'd like to still kind of kick on a little bit for a little bit longer yet. You know, so this job came up. I knew the guy that that I was taking over from, and I knew the bloodlines of a lot of the hounds. So it was it was it was silly for me not to to take opportunity to come here, you know, it was kind of, and, and like I said, there's, there's only limited packs in, in Canada to go to. There's only like five or six packs really. And of those five or six packs, there's only three really that have professional huntsmen anymore. Well, I would think Virginia would be kind of like the Mecca down there. Of, of it is. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in, in Maryland, Virginia, it's certainly the pinnacle of North American fox hunting for sure. The, but it's it's got its pluses and its minuses. There's a lot of money here, and there's a lot of money people here, and there's some beautiful properties. But the downside of that is doing what we do. There's so much development. You know, we're losing losing a lot of hunt territories due to you know development, and just it's just too perilous. There's just too many too many roads. You know, mm-hmm. so that's that is the big major downside to it. Is it's it's. You know, it's typical America. It's every all the population is is accumulated on the east and west coasts, right? So, I mean, there's some fantastic country out out west. I mean, Colorado, Kansas, some beautiful, massive, big country, huge tract of land that you could gallop and run all day long. But there's not the population, and there's not the money. So, you know, you need you need people with deep pockets for this game because it's expensive. Horses are expensive. Everything's expensive. So, it, you know, you have to kind of go. You have it's a trade off, basically. You know, it's a trade off. So it it is what it is. I mean, it's there's still a lot of beautiful country around, but it's 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 getting tighter and tighter. Yeah, it's getting tighter and tighter. I mean, we have we use GPS collars and all of the hounds, so that that gives us a good. Um, a good kind of safeguard. Uh, we've just switched to a different system. We were with Garmin, which is probably the most common one. 
but we've just switched to another system um, which is it's made by a company called Dogtra um, and the system is called Pathfinder 2 and the beauty about that is you can it basically runs it's a GPS system that runs basically through your phone um, and the one really really thing the really, really great thing about that is it has um, basically a geofence um, facility on it so you can basically where we're going to hunt for the day and we hunt in a couple of really really tight areas one that's way too close to a railroad track than I would rather it was um, but I can basically form um, uh, a geofence around that area so that if the hounds go anywhere near it they start getting a warning it's kind of just basically like an in somebody's invisible fence around the yard yeah that's incredible so the hound so the hounds are all torn trained so or starting to be torn trained. We started this year with a lot of the pups. And if it, you know, it, and it basically works in the same way, they'll get a torn, and the closer and closer they get, the stimulation gets hotter and hotter to a point where they get a full on zap if they get too close. So, you know, it's it's you know, technology has taken part in something that's a, an 18th century sport you know we live in the yeah, 21st I would never have guessed that that's amazing yeah so you know we've got that that is a big uh, a very valuable tool to us is being just having that that know-how and, and 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 having that kind of backup of you know when we're hunting i'm constantly counting the hounds so in a typical Typical day when we're hunting, I'll take anywhere between 30 and 40 hounds is somewhere around about that. And we count them in couples, so we always refer to them in couples. So we count them in couples. And we're counting constantly throughout the day. Um, but every now and again, you know, you can you can make a miscount. Um, so it's nice to me for me to be able to just pick out my phone and just quickly scroll through and it'll pull up the map and it'll say dog number 15 is half a mile to the right and i can just quickly either give it a tone or a, or mike's mike the guy the kennelman is in the truck so i can quickly say to him hey look there's a hound over in such and such an area can you slip round and go grab him if he's gotten left behind you know so it's just it's a nice peace of mind for us you know yeah, and it's amazing it's a, it's a nice bit of kit so it keeps us keeps us Keeps us out of the danger zone, at least, anyway. Yeah, sure. Now, you're in charge of breeding the animals as well, the dogs? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I consult, I, you know, I, I always consult with the masters and just, you know, it's more of just keeping them in the loop. Um, I think they trust me enough to know that I know the bloodlines and I know what I'm, what I'm, where I'm trying to get to and where, where, where we need to be. You know, uh, the whole development thing with, with the way the country's getting tighter and tighter, we want we're trying to get it so that we we don't want a super super quick hound, because um, if they're super super quick, they end up putting too much pressure on the fox. A fox will only run as quick as it's pushed. So if you have a really really hard driving hound that that really gets right up on the fox. The fox will either go to ground super quick or he's going to blast out the area where we're not allowed to be. So we don't, we, we're at a point now where back in the day, you know, we had a lot more territory. We could, you could probably have a quicker hound, but it's, it's like everything else because the territories are shrinking. We need, we need a more biddable hounds that, you know, can, 
can deal with because it's like anything if you constantly have to stop something so if, you know hounds do this because they love what they do it's not because they want to get a chance to kill something at the end of it because 99% of the time they don't they do it because they love doing it but if you constantly are having to stop them all the time I think it just breaks their hearts you know you you, you don't want to constantly have to keep stopping them you know you get a field out and it's like all right lads we we, we gotta kind of we gotta stop this we gotta shut it down because it's going in a wrong direction so if we if we breed hounds that are too quick then that becomes more of an issue so but at the same time we don't want to be at a point where we're just woofing along at two mile an hour so it's you've got to kind of you know you want to breed hounds. You want you want to breed hounds with what we call drive. They want they want that that ability to take them forward. Um, but like the mental drive, not the physical drive. The mental drive to want to push them forward, but not so much that they're going to push the game too hard. Well, it's like a good show dog policy. You have ones with heart that that want to do it. So it's the same idea. Exactly. Exactly, exactly. So we don't want to get into a situation where we're like, oh, we don't want to push, we don't want to push, and you end up keep making these matings that you end up with with hounds that just have no gusto at all and no drive. So, you know, all 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 different variations of that drive is, they're all important because, you know, you might have a, a female that has a tremendous amount of drive, almost too much drive, I'd be inclined to use a dog that is an extremely good dog, maybe has a super low scenting ability. It can smell in really poor scenting conditions. And you'd put that dog on that soup that bitch with a with a with a super high drive. You're gonna get more of a happy medium. My 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 thing is I've always and it doesn't matter whether it's with, with hounds or with, with the terriers or anything else, the emphasis has to be on the bitch. The bitch, I don't think people give enough emphasis on the bitch. And, and it's the same reason why racehorse guys will spend $12 million on a broodmare. There is there is so much. And there are some sires that are more important than others, for sure. But I think there there is a huge, I, I always put a huge emphasis on a bitch. I, I think if I'm going to make a breeding and I have the option of a an average bitch with a brilliant dog or a brilliant bitch with an average dog. I will go with a brilliant bitch with an average dog every day of the week. Um, Interesting. That's, that's my, my, my personal thoughts. I think there's, there's, I don't think people make enough emphasis on the female line. I think it's, it's, it's super, super important. Um, and that, and the fact that when I'm selecting a, 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 you know, a breeding, I look at the whole family you know, you, you see a lot of, you can have one exceptional hound that's brilliant and all the rest are absolute duds. That's not really, for me, that's not a good, that's not a good prospect. Right. Doesn't matter how exceptional that one hound is, if the rest of the litter are duds, it, that, to me, that's not, that's not good enough odds. You know, if he's one of eight, you know, that's one good and seven duds. I don't need to be breeding that kind of litter. I'd rather have a litter of, you know, eight pups and six of them make it. Six of them are all really, really good and two are duds. 
I'd be more inclined to go with a with a dog from that breed than I would <clears throat> that exceptional one, because that one exceptional one is likely just a freak. Yeah, fluke. And yeah, we get that in dog shows as well. You know that. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Are those absolutely. are American foxhounds you have. Yeah, yeah. So these these are uh, they they kind of they're different to what you would see in the show ring. Um, these are. They're a, they're a strain that's been bred um, originally from Culpeper County, which is just north of here. And the guy that um, that started them off was a guy called Frank Burrell Bywaters uh, back in 18, 1890s. Um, and this specific strain is 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 from those lines. So you know they're not quite as I mean if you you're looking at at a show American fox sound. These probably would not, you know, they're not not even closely resemble them <laughs> in a lot of ways. You know, some of them are, some of them are a little bit yeah. racier and a bit more like a short shorthound. But what we see in the in the, in the work in American Foxhound ring would be very very different from what you would see in the in the in the show world. But um, I like them. I like them. They're they're really really smart breed. Um, they're they're super biddable. Um, they've got beautiful voices, beautiful big voices on them. Very very good noses, which, like we were just saying earlier on, you know the the scenting right now is just dreadful, and we're able to make something of a day. Whereas a lot of packs that didn't have that extra nose that we have would be just basically it would be a a trail ride with dogs because there's there's just you know the hounds just can't scent anything. Right. Uh, and in my opinion, if if these if my hounds can't smell much, then there's pretty much no nobody's hounds are going to smell them. You know, they've they've got a pretty good deep scent. How does the day end then? So you're out you're out in the hunt, and then you've decided that that's enough. How, how does it end? So basically, uh, if we you know depending on the day, I mean, right now with these poor scenting conditions, we'll we'll go out for two and a half, three hours maybe. Um, and you get to a point where you're flogging a dead horse, literally. I mean, it's, you know, if, if the hounds can't, you know, if they find a fox and can't run it when it's two or three seconds old, you're really, you, you know, you're, you're, you're on a hiding to nothing. So, you know, we'll, you know, people have, have spent a lot of time producing their horses and, and, and getting themselves ready for the day. So, you know, it may be the fact that, you know, that might be the only time they get out for a couple of months. So you still got to kind of, even though it could be a, for me personally, it could be a crappy day because the hounds really can't smell anything. You still have to think of the members that, that have come out and have, have, you know, have, have put the effort in to make sure that the horse is all nicely turned out and they've turned out. So you still have to kind of make a bit of a show of it. So, I mean, even when it's poor scent, and we still got to kind of take them for a bit of a, bit of a jolly and try and keep them happy and then you know we'll 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 scooch back around and kind of eventually make a big loop and go back to the trailers and then afterwards we'll have like a tailgate and you know people bring snacks and and sandwiches and stuff and drinks and we have like a little bit of a a, a little bit of a, a meeting afterwards um but on a better sentence day i mean sometimes it can be you know we can find a find a really good running fox that'll run us for 
an hour and everyone's horses are completely shot. You know, we, you know, they've gone flat to the boards, they've jumped 20 fences, nobody has any horsepower left. And it's like, well, guys, we might as well, you know, just call it quits. So it, it just, there's no two days that are the same, you know. And I think that's what I like about this job as well is that, you know, there, there really isn't t- any two days the same. There's no predictability about it at all. You know, it could go many of many of different ways. <laughs> you know, when so, you bring the bring the pack back to the kennel, how do you do you cool them down? What do you what do you do? So we we'll we get back to the back to the trailers, um, and I'll do like on the way back. We normally do like a head count. So as as we're as we're walking back to the trailers, I have a a list. So basically, I have a printed list of all the hounds' names and the hounds that are going to hunt on a particular day. I have uh, I just highlight them, and then each of the the collars have has a number on the collar, so they're all so we know where they all are at any one time. So we'll we'll basically between myself and the whipperins, we'll just cross them off as we're walking along. And we'll, you know, I take a photograph on my phone and I'll just shout the names out. And as we're riding along, if someone spots that hound here, 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 and then when we get back. If there's any missing, I'll quickly jump in the truck. Mike will take the main pack back with the horse because they travel in one big trailer. We have a gooseneck. Hounds go in the front part and the horses go in the back. Um, and if if I'm missing a hound, I'll quickly, like I'll switch vehicles. Michael, the kennelman, he'll take the, the truck and trailer back with the, with the hounds and the horses. And I'll quickly go find whichever hound it is that's missing. He'll go back and then we'll... We let the hounds off the trailers. We take all the collars off, um, and they'll just chill out for ten minutes, and then we put them all back in together. And then I'll feed them when we get back. We always feed when we get back. I don't feed before. We don't want them running around on full stomach. Now, do you ever lose one overnight? Like, you- it's funny to mention that. So I've just come back this morning. Um, we lost a hound about seven weeks ago. We were hunting, and despite having the GPS collar on him. GPS collar was not giving us any signal, went for days upon days, searching for him, calling for him. And I was all pretty much resigned to the fact that he was gone. Either somebody had, you know, there's a lot of coon guys and deer hunters that, you know, that, that would, would steal a hound. I know it sounds horrible, but they would. And, you know, the fact that, you know, those GPS collars are 350 bucks a piece. So they see a hound wandering around with a $300 you know, necklace around it, around its neck. It's it's not uncommon for them to suddenly disappear. So I thought either he'd been picked up and stolen um, for whatever reason, either by deer hunters or some, you know, good meaning um, general member of the public that think, you know, all hunters abuse their dogs kind of thing. Oh, let's take him out of that system. So I thought either that had happened or he'd been hit on the road. The collar was no longer functioning. I drove around. For, for days looking for him, looking in ditches to see if he'd been hit. Nothing, absolutely nothing. Um, and I was resigned to the fact that he was gone. And then about two weeks ago, where we released him, where we where we met that particular day, the farmer there was bringing in corn and said he'd seen him. And I'm like, no. Nah. He's like, yeah, no, honest to God, Paul, we seen him. So... Um, been back up and forwards a couple of times and the last time I went I took my hunting horn because the hounds are all trained for a hunting horn if you blow the hunting horn they'll come in and we came around I came around the farm buildings and there's a like a corn crib there 
and some old hay in the corner and he made a nest in the corner and I came around and he took off and I, I called him. I said, Hey, war cry, war cry. And he kind of looked at me and got all kind of sheepish and just took off running. And, um, he, um, he took off running and I'm like, well, you know, this is, he'd been out five weeks, maybe. Wow. Um, and actually, amazingly, didn't look like a bag of bones. I mean, I don't know where he was getting fed, where he was, whether he was just eating deer carcass. I mean, we're in the middle of deer season, so right. it could, he could have just been eating deer carcasses or whatever. But he was, he looked amazingly well. And so I'm in this conundrum of like, what the hell do we do now? Because he's basically feral. He's completely feral. So um, fast forward a couple of weeks. And about 10 days ago, I managed to chat with a friend who knew a trapper who had some coyote traps, like a live have a heart trap that was big enough that would take a hound. I said, well, you know, he's, he's obviously going back to that area. Maybe if we set up this big coyote trap, maybe we can catch him in that. So it's been baited for, for 10 days. And this morning I got a phone call from one of our members who's been checking on it and said he was in there. So seven weeks after him being being gone, went hunting with us, he was in the trap, but completely feral. I yeah, thought, what do, you, what do you do? So you know, I thought it'd be like you know, you see all of these like you know, lad Bible things of like dogs that have been gone for, and they come wagging up to the owners. No, no, he wanted to eat me, basically. <laughs> yeah. Wolf. He was sitting in there, and he was like, I. Hey, what cry? How are you doing? And I put my hand up on the cage to sniff it, and he just went. He curled his lip, and, went, and I'm like, "Oh, all right, fair enough." And then started barking at me and going at me, and I'm like, "Oh crap!" So uh, we got him out of the crate, put him in, uh, out of the trap, and into one of my crates. And um, he seemed a little bit so his eye seemed a little bit softer and a little bit happier. We got him back here, and I put him in in one of the separate. Uh, lodges right next to the hot bitch pen. And I figured, well, a couple of saucy females next door. Right. If that don't bring him out of his shell, nothing will. <laughs> and um, Yvonne just came in earlier on when I came in here and uh, said that she, he's kind of wagging his tail and was licking Mike. So he's finally, oh, like, the penny, oh, is finally, the penny penny has dropped. Yeah. So, wow. so, yeah. Yeah, that, that stands. I mean, in 30 seasons, I've never had that happen. That's, That's the first time I've so, but seven weeks afterwards now, he still looks relatively well. The only one thing I will say, he is covered in ticks. So that's gonna be my first thing is uh, we'll have to we'll have to give him a good dousing full of permethrin, get rid of all the ticks, and then uh, I'll probably start him on a course of doxycycline just just purely because of the amount of ticks that have been on him, because you know, good chance he's probably gonna be uh, generating some Lyme's disease, I would imagine. So Wow. We'll hit him with that. But, yeah, I'm absolutely dumbfounded and thrilled to have found him because I thought he was gone. It's amazing and, he came back to where he was released from. So it's, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we had that happen once when we were in, in Italy. Um, and we didn't – back in Italy, we never had our own horse and hound transport. We used to get picked up by a, a company. And they had a big, huge – horse transporting lorry that kept like 12 horses on it and they used to have a huge section in the front that the hounds used to go in and then they would pick us up and then they'd go around three or four different stables in in and around rome and pick 
the members' horses up from there and then go to the meet. So the hounds were, were you know, it's not like they kind of memorized where they were going or whatever, but the one time we were, uh, we'd been, I can't remember how far away it was. It was a decent way away from where the kennels were. Um, and when we'd finished, there was a, a like a little side door on the, on the, on the truck that hadn't been shut properly. And we were driving along what they call the GRA, the Grand Ricordo Anulare, which is basically the big massive ring road around Rome. It's like four lanes, five lanes, huge. It's kind of like, you know, 401 around Toronto. And, um, the door, I like, I happened to look out the, the side of the door, uh, the, the mirror on, on the truck, and I said, look, the door's open to the driver, and he's like, oh, crap. So we quickly pulled over, did a quick head count, and what we thought was all there, but one hound had come out. Don't know how. And that the GRA, there is, like, huge fencing all the way around it. And we're like, he's dead. He's got to be dead. Yet again, we, we drove up and down that road a million times, not not a sight, no sound. And uh, that would have been like on the Wednesday. And then Saturday, Saturday night would have been Friday night, early Saturday morning. We, we were in bed and all of a sudden the hounds are going absolutely berserk. And sure enough, the hound had rolled up back at the kennels. Yes. <laughs> No idea, no. And and there's been bunches of stories of this happening all through the through the annals of time of these hounds just making massive journeys. You know, you know, packs have gone to visit with other packs and they've lost them during that point, and then you know they've made it a hundred miles across country back to their kennels, almost like a a home and pigeon. You know, yeah. so yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah, it is pretty pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. I'm running out of time, but I can't thank you enough. This is amazing, man. I didn't. It's amazing to be let into your world a little bit because I'm <laughs> sure there were so many people that had no idea this really even existed. So yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Pretty, uh, pretty great. I, I might have to do a part two with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, you need to come down, come down and stay with us, and then we do a guided tour, and you can come and see all the hounds and do a live, do a live show or something. That'd, That'd be, be awesome, cool. it? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, know you, I know you do enough traveling down here. It wouldn't be the end of the world for you to swing by. No, exactly. we got We got somewhere for you to stay. <laughs> we, got a, we got a spare kennel you could go dog right. down with. Uh, I'll, be, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put you in with a hot bitch as well. We'll put you in with a hot bitch. Well. Nice. <laughs> your, your, your reputation precedes you, you old okay, dog. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> 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 oh, dear God. oh well, well thanks paul that was amazing and uh I, I can't thank you enough that was that was a great that was a great hour that was you know I, i'm sure the viewers are going to be they're going to be amazed so yeah yeah well look look me up i'm i'm on facebook uh if you go on i mean a lot of the younger people will be on tiktok if you look up hounds or us on tiktok i got a bunch of amazingly there's that the, that medium is like I have like 1.1 million kind of uh, likes on on Hounds of Russ and TikTok. I mean, there's a couple of huge, big viral videos that have got millions of views on it, which who would have thought? I thought it was just a bunch of teenage girls twerking on there, but apparently no, not so much. <laughs> I'll have to take a look, though. Hounds of yeah. Russ. 
Right. Yeah, Hounds of Roth. Yeah, and there's a bunch on there. And uh, a little, I, I, I was, I did have a decent following on, um, on Instagram, but then Instagram, somebody, somebody robbed my account and stole it, and I couldn't get it back. And the, the meta, the metasphere, whatever they call, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have any of it. So I had to restart again. So I don't have very many people on, on Instagram. Quite, TikTok. I'll check that out. Yeah. No twerking. There's no no young girls twerking, okay? I don't want to see you twerking either. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's a nasty thought. <laughs> Real nasty thought. <laughs> All right, man. I appreciate your time. I know you're busy, and I know we we had this scheduled last week, and something came up. Is that that horse is okay this week? All is yeah, good. Yeah. No, we're all good. We're all Excellent. good, and Excellent. everything everything's in good shape, so we're good to go. But there yeah. You go. Don't, yeah, get get your book down here. Come on down. Sounds great, man. All right, appreciate it, Paul. Right. And uh, give right. my best to Yvonne and Jackmo, and uh, I'll, I'll, yeah. uh, I'll talk to you soon. All right, man. Take it easy. You too, brother. Totally amazing. Totally amazing. Thank you, Paul. I can't. I can't say how happy I am that we did this because it's, it's going to amaze people. Um, if you like what you see here, make sure you press the like, share, and subscribe button, and don't forget about the podcast every Thursday with Wayne Cavanaugh the dog show drive talk to you guys soon